Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. And you're one of those people that does the ha-ha jokey thing and then gets all huffy and high dungeon when you can't think of a comeback. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 204, an obel for Charon, which translates roughly to a coin for Charon, the ferryman to the land of the dead over the river Styx, comes to you now via 100,000-year-old dying encyclopedia sphere. And just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at an episode. This is an episode that is in part about helping others and just a reminder for ways to help those in need. Wilson Cruz had uh, tweeted at us in the fall about UnitedForPuertoRico.com. And just this morning, I heard Michael Shore, creator of The Good Place, talk about the International Rescue Committee found at Rescue.com. Won't you lend a hand? Absolutely worthy causes. And if anything underscored in this episode, the need to listen, the need to hear, the need to help. And Pete, in Star Trek news, you have some information about the Lower Decks series. Yes, uh, franchise uh, runner Alex Kurtzman spoke uh, at the TCAs and some details that emerged from that is that the Lower Decks cartoon series uh, coming will definitely not be available in 2019. So Matt and I have wiped a little bit of sweat from our brow that we won't be covering that adding that to all the other things we'll be covering this year, but it will be sometime early next year, 2020. Or is it 2020? I don't know. (laughs) Well, Pete, speaking of decks, uh, you were sent a great article about the all-important topic of Captain's Quarters. Yes, Robert T. Frost had shared that with us on the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, which I had earlier shared with the not on Facebook, Matt. We'll talk about that a little bit later on when we get into some feedback and now for our mission briefing pike awaits an incoming guest in the transporter room revealed to be number one matt uh rebecca romaine here uh finally in the flesh on the show she reports that the failures to enterprise cascaded through all of its primary systems helm navigation, impulse, and wharf drives, but the chief Louvier, their main engineer, uh, has a team working around the clock. Uh, Pike doesn't think he'll ever have a chief engineer more in love with his ship. That's cute. <laughs> that is. It's a, it's a nice little moment, to be sure. Uh, it's noted that the Enterprise is the only ship that has had these problems. Step one, at least in uh, Pike's mind, axe all those holophones, going to go screen to screen only. Pete, not only is that, I think, obviously setting up some of the future tech that we will see in the past of classic Trek, um, but also I just know that means that we're going to get our first view of the Enterprise Bridge via the screen to screen communication and barely see anything in the background. So get ready to be teased. (laughs) Or things being torn apart and it's, it's not your dad's enterprise because it's the worked on refurbished enterprise but in the mess hall matt number one is hungry cheeseburger fries habanero sauce uh 
Pike asks her if she'd like a little lighter fluid to go with that, but that goes with the shake. Pete, she may be described in the early documents as a as a cool, mysterious character, but she likes those lunches, hot, hot, hot. Uh, she also says that she's been looking secret, secret into the Spock mess. It's been classified. Yes, look, look, looking around to yes. make sure no one at lunch is listening. And kind of in retrospect, it's like her visit, she beams in and it's like, I have a report on the ship. And then they have the real reason. The show kind of underplaying it very nicely. The real reason for their meeting, her talking about the Spock mess, it's been classified. Level one is all her poking around in a sanctioned way. She gives the old no comment. She won't answer that. And that's Pete when she gives him an old, new, old pad to be continued. Yes, and also says very curiously, I'm not letting him, Spock, go without a fight. Something we're definitely going to have to chew over a little bit later. In engineering, Stamets is looking at the, uh, I guess you could say, uh, TBFKM, the blob formerly (laughs) known as May. Um, May won't do. It, of course, has sentience and intention. Pete, this thing needs a home. It does, and uh, it seems to have come from the mycelial network. It doesn't just uh, connect life. It contains life, um, which they reason it resides in. And why it might have appeared to Tilly as May, she reflects on knowing May when she was 14. What a weird kid that Tilly herself was. She didn't have a lot of friends. Nobody really believed in her, especially her, but May had. And she regrets she wasn't the friend that May needed. And uh, Stamets tries to, as they've developed their rapport here, pump her up that you know, she she is kind, more kind than she ever gives herself credit for, but that May died and she didn't even know. This is a particularly well acted scene by where Mary Wiseman. Uh, I, I don't want to overly assume as to her life off screen and whatnot, but certainly as a as a young actress, acting being a vocation that's set up for failure, she's someone who you know, does not have the traditional movie star looks kind of thing. So it's not, it probably wasn't obvious there in Juilliard, like, oh, she's headed to be the next Angelina Jolie or whatever it might be. To me, I'm inferring perhaps that there was some, there was some carryover from actress to character there. But the Tilly that we see, there's this little wobble that her eye does as she's, as she's talking about, you know, kind of being alone in life as a teen. The chin. You get the the little wiggle of the the chin emotionally, um, really, really effective and a a high point in an episode with a lot of emotional acting. Oh, my goodness, yes. But, Pete, this whole discussion, May resting her hand on the glass, uh, we see that Fungal May goes up and makes a hand shape back, uh, and it kind of starts to change. Pete, moment of Dramatic tension here, so cut to the ready room where Burnham is briefing Detmer. Yes, they've cross-referenced the Red Angel with all known winged and avian life forms in the Federation. And immediately we're drawn to Saru here, who is uh, hunched over, who's drinking, later asks for the salt, pouring it in either water or tea. We never know, but it's not good. 
Uh, Linus is there as well, and his uh, lingual clicks and pops sometimes, Matt, get, you know, lost in the universal translator. A little bit of foreshadowing there. His answer to Burnham was nothing in the known universe regarding this Red Angel. Uh, Detmer speculates that the Red Angel is not a species, but maybe one of a kind. And Awoshikun says that perhaps it's a mutation. Reese there, and I love how we've seen now virtually the entire bridge crew in this ready room, kind of like the A-team on the case, Matt. He says that whatever it is, they could figure out how to connect the signals to and help them identify it. And then we have Commander Non, X of the Enterprise, back aboard here. If only they knew uh, what all this means as a way to reintroduce that character. And then Saru explains how he woke up this morning fighting an acute rhinovirus. Linus had a cold last week, which sucked. So we get a little bit of a way to tell. We've had three episodes and a week of time has gone by. It seems like yesterday, Matt, we were in the basement of a church on uh, a planet we'd never been to before in the Beta Quadrant. Um, But as a Saurian, six nasal canals, you can certainly see how a rhinovirus, which apparently alien species can get the common cold, which we always thought had been cured by this point, would suck. Well, Pete, this could be the uncommon cold common to uh, to uh, Saurians. The difference in this scene between good and great, maybe not this, the scene as a whole, but here's an example of the difference between good and great. The Linus mask, the Linus actor, all of that is really, really good. You add the computer effect of the giant eye blinking every so often. not Which for some blinks great... in different directions if you watch it. It blinks both horizontally and vertically, which is awesome. It's, it's, just, it's just phenomenal. My only complaint about this scene, Pete, is that you can see the writer's fingerprints ever so slightly in that they want to make sure everybody at home is keeping track week to week. I wonder if this is just driven creatively or if this is driven by some sort of viewing data or whatever, but that kind of name checking, hey, I'm Commander Non. Remember me from the Enterprise, from the asteroid? I'm here again. I appreciate that. I get it. Everything in the audience has to be clear why she's there. But just to in the world of the show, Pete, so everybody went into the ready room that has the one door and they're all standing around having their talk and Commander Non was there the entire time waiting to be like, oh, I'm here too, by the way. It Again. is the the taught writerly thing, not T-A-U-T, but the, the thing that is taught to writers as far as recapping. You are also writing for a, a streamer that reveals their episodes week to week. So they're trying to have it all, though there might be people that would shotgun all of this and say, but I watched that episode two hours ago. I know who you are. So I, I get the complaint at the same time. It's it's the thing they really should do. Well, here's a quick edit. Uh, let's go around the room for the briefing, everybody, which maybe would slow the scene down. Maybe that's why they didn't. But And don't forget, Commander Nan from the asteroid is joining us. But Pete, joining the scene is Pike. He enters... He sets a heading and sends Saru to bed. Uh, everybody else leaves and goes to do bridge stuff. Uh, 
hope they had some junior officer flying the ship during the meeting. Um, <laughs> in private, Pike and Burnham, they do a little old info share. There's a warp signature from Spock's stolen shuttle, and they should arrive at it in the next few hours. I'm like, awesome. I didn't see the preview. This must be the episode where we get bearded Spock. That's great. <laughs> um, Burnham, though, is apoplectic. She wants to excuse herself from seeing Spock. Wouldn't uh, her presence make it worse? She says the Pike is better suited to help Spock than she is. And uh, bottom line, Pike says that reaching Spock is the priority. Pete, this scene could go on and on, but something stops them. It doesn't. Of course, all that information, courtesy of the very resourceful number one, that people have a tendency to end up owing her favors. And we get this shake here. We come to the bridge and uh, after ha having dropped out of warp, Detmer reports something pulled them out, helm unresponsive. Uh, Pike orders shields and red alerts. Um, Awoshikun says that this is not a tractor beam, mar far more powerful than this. She can't raise shields. And Burnham reports the preliminary analysis suggests a multi-phasic stasis field disrupting their shield harmonics. Detmer says they're at a full stop. They're locked in place uh, like a fly in a web mat. And there's the spider, this gigantic sphere as we go to the title card. The credits show our usual regulars. No curveballs, no surprises. The teleplay is by Alan McRoy and Andrew Colville with story credit by Jordan Ardino and Gretchen Jayberg and Aaron Harberts. It's directed by Lee Rose. Back into the episode, Burnham notes that the giant ball fire thing, my words, is uh, 560 kilometers across. It melds the organic and the non-living. So is it living or not? Burnham says that such anthropomorphization is premature. Uh, there's also this pulsing noise coming from it. She knows we're going to circle back to that towards the end of the episode. Then, Pete, the beginning of a portion of the episode that is delightfully Star Trek. It is classic Star Trek, small c. Uh, we might be able to poke a couple story holes into it, but but what happens? She starts speaking Klingon. Uh, says she does. She understands the stakes, and uh, she will be uh, working on the uh, the case here. And suddenly, uh, Pike is speaking French, asking why she's speaking Klingon. Uh, on the bridge, there are alarms. We have uh, people speaking. Detmer speaks Andorian. Awoshikun is speaking Norwegian. Pike then speaks German. Nan then speaks Italian very well. Um, and bueno. They, or, yeah, muy, 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 muy bueno. Uh, bellissimo, by the way. Uh, and uh, universal translator malfunctioning here. Bryce is speaking Welsh, explaining that the sphere had answered their universal hail. And then this happened. As Saru comes to the bridge, Pike is speaking Hebrew now, welcoming him to the Tower of Babel. Wait a minute, Pete. That's a classical reference. Uh, I'd also like to point out, obviously, okay, Saru called to the bridge. He knows 94 languages. That was seated last episode. Um, or was it two ago? It was seated in the last couple episodes. Yes. I just want to point out that this, you know, we spent a lot of time last season talking about how does the writer's room work? How do they encode things? How do they put clues in? And this is now an established practice where 
uh, I don't want to say that I'm not negative in any way, but as opposed to Saru's dossier in episode 102, and then for this episode, they're like, oh, crud, we need magic powers. Oh, look, Saru has this thing. Just be on watch out, viewers, that they will do this a couple of episodes ahead when they need a thing. They'll kind of seed it in, in recent memory. So that's how the writer's room uh, works. You uh, also have to wonder so this was scripted and shot ahead of the short track um so the things they refer to with saru and then giving us the 15 minute uh prequel to his time in starfleet obviously they felt these things could be explored but here they're developed first which is a great observation and doubtless how it was created. It's interesting that for you and I and most listeners, we don't experience it that way. Like we came in with that background knowledge. We came in with Saru's background knowledge. Then this episode unfolded. It's just interesting that it was constructed in the opposite way. There are people who have yet to watch the short track which certainly we have watched and we have a podcast available for and how much it informs his backstory. Was it designed that you would watch it first? It wasn't. It was, well, what do we make these short tracks? Let's do how he gets into Starfleet. I wonder, let me be this way. All four of the short tracks are, are lovely on their own and very different merits. Um, I would be interested to go back and see if this one, which was my least favorite, not the worst, just my least favorite, uh, it'll be interesting to see if The Brightest Star is is kind of better in retrospect now that you, you can see how it fits into this episode. But bottom line, Pete, we're on the bridge. Saru knows that the Universal Translator is down. Uh, of course he knows that. He has eyes and ears. He starts pushing buttons. He gets the ship stabilized bit by bit. Then everything is back, albeit on the bridge. For those who speak Earth English. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was a really not so subtle jab, uh, which was appreciated. Um, but they need to fix it for the rest of the ship here to be able to communicate with the crew and the Discovery computer so that they can free themselves and this virus is going to continue to spread. Burnham wants to try to purge it from the uh, Universal Translator's main interface. Um, but she's going to need Saru to do that. And he's beginning to struggle more and more. Uh, but he's going to go with her in the event that uh, she'll be unable to operate the turbo lift without his uh, lingual assistance. The story moves to engineering where, in terms of the Universal Translator, everything is fine. Pete, that's because we're not going to do the B story with a whole bunch of, wait, what did you say, subtitled stuff. Um, they are ordered to put the spore drive on standby just in case they need to jump out. Uh, Pete, then Reno walks in. You know, the Reno that <laughs> writers on important blogs complained, she showed up and then that's it. The story right. doesn't respect her. No, she's been in... The gear part of engineering, not the spore drive sciency, you know, kind of kind of nook of that department. Uh, here she's walking in all sassy uh, there to help firewall the organic systems. 
She, of course, places her faith in good old antimatter and dilithium that creates the reliable highway. She likes mushrooms picked off for pizza. Pete, major foul there. Mushrooms are great on pizza, even if you're they eating are. a family of maize. <laughs> My favorite topping, hands down. Um, couple things here. One, uh, because in the real world, uh, Tignataro had these things called stand-up appearances Doubtless the schedule was reconfigured so that we get this mini bottle episode portion of the story dropped into this episode. Uh, so from a logistics standpoint, deftly handled and to the haters that why you take this new character I like away. You under- ruined my childhood from when I met Reno three episodes ago. Right. Under understand busyness. Um, and of course the universal translator in this, this section isn't broken so that they can talk and she's going to do the bleeps and the bloops and all these other things. Um, and I love the conflict with Stamets here, the discussion over fungi versus, you know, what is the coal fired version of, uh, technology, um, shades of Matt, the, the next gen episode where warp drive is ripping holes in the universe, uh, much like later on, we'll learn the spore drive is ripping holes in the mycelial network. So many thoughts, Pete. First of all, this is a nice subtle reminder without hitting people over the head that in the 23rd century, dilithium is uh non-renewable whereas come the enterprise d next generation time they can recrystallize the crystal or whatever it is the storylines of oh man we need more space fuel called dilithium that sounds space fuel future those fall away um but yeah this is the time where dilithium mines and needing more crystals to have the bleeps and the bloops that's established Second of all, Pete, the Next Generation storyline about the importance of, hey, everybody, slow down, otherwise we're going to rip up space. That, of course, followed up in uh, not any time. Some people speculate that's because Voyager had the nacelles that go up a little bit, or they realized that was a really tough pair of story handcuffs to be in, or the Dominion War happened, and (laughs) nobody cares about the space atmosphere when you're fighting the them. But hey... Uh, yesterday's solar panels, which was the fix in their projection of the universe, became the fungi that they're using on Discovery now. Also, Reno can fix things with duct tape and gum. Uh, and that's not a metaphor, Pete. We see that uh, she wants the gum. She gets the grape gum. I have major thoughts, which I will not get into, Pete. Grape gum, thumbs down in my book. But Pete, more on that gum later, the all-important gum storyline. I don't know why they didn't name this episode a piece of gum for Taron, but I digress. At a hallway work panel, uh, Saru and Burnham. Speaking Russian. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh colluding man. Pete, in Russian. Uh, Pete, I guess that's why I don't have Facebook. Um, but Burnham and Saru have the Universal Translator back working. Then Saru collapses. This is more than a cold because... Wait, the ship is suddenly hit. Back to engineering we go. There's a hum. There's lightning. All the doors shut. This is done by the computer to isolate the damage. 
but are they safe? Reno notes that uh, the oxygen could ignite and uh, they need an electric arc to conduct the surge. I guess, Pete, to conduct the surge out of the static in the air. I was a little unclear, but I know that they needed to do stuff fast or they could die. They're going to ground it with the door and Stamets is going to lure the uh, electricity with an argon-xenon mixture that he uses to slow spore decay. Kind of his version of the house dressing. Pete, working together, that's not a stupid idea. Uh, back to Burnham, Owo tells her that the, uh, the new issue is that the virus is spreading. Pete, it's taking down the EPS systems. We all know how important those EPS systems are. Back to engineering, the surge protector is set, and uh, Reno fires it at the door. She goes flying. The lights go off. Tilly has the best hair poof ever. <laughs> where's Reno? Is she all right? She says she had a weird dream. She had played drums for Prince, and there were doves and a parade. Pete, this a most purple section of the story. It is. Um, Tilly is uh, suddenly beset upon by May, however, on her right arm. It won't let her go. We see Burnham helping Saru uh, to sickbay. They run into Pike, of course. He was on his way to check with Dr. Pollard because comms are down. He needed to check on sickbay where there are people being treated for burns. She's triaging to sickbay number two. Uh, and she runs the tests on Saru. Elevated heart rate, spiking adrenal levels, increased neural activity. The pain would render an average humanoid unconscious. And the ganglia shoot out, Matt. That's never good. It is an effect of his condition. He's seeing flashes of ultraviolet light invisible to humans. This is a common condition, however, with Kelpians. And that they need to ignore it. And the sphere is not benevolent. But he comes finally with the information this is terminal. He awoke thinking it was just the common cold. But apparently the uh, Vahari, the uh, the biological Kelpian process that signals the need to either be called for slaughter or to be driven mad by the predator species, the Ba'ul, uh, is very similar in its start to a common cold. He is, he notes, a slave to his biology. Back in engineering, uh, Tilly is now in the spore enclosure uh, quarantine. She has the May blob on her arm. Tilly says she should be terrified, but isn't. She feels that May isn't going to hurt her. Uh, but that's when Stamets starts to think that the blob is secreting something that either calms her or makes her high. Yes, the so uh, psilio-psychic, similar to uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Pete, it's all weirdly connected in writers' rooms and their college experiences and things <laughs> like that. Um, back in sick bay, they need to escape to save Saru, and the sphere is killing the ship. Uh, it's noted that this is an inefficient way for a virus to act. Uh, I'll, I'll disagree slightly. I mean, cholera and dysentery work that way, but I digress. Um, worse, Pete, is that maybe they're assigning known medicine to an unknown entity. Major party foul when a giant thousand, hundred thousand year old space sphere is trying to kill you. Life support down to 60%. Saru says they could create digital antibodies, which would be like uh, army ants slowly eating a water buffalo. 
Um, he's not going to stay in engineering. He's going to go and help. Um, and when he speaks with uh, Burnham alone, talking about helping the woman, how does he explain to the woman who's fought for her next breath so many times that he comes from a race that submits? She says she would never judge him, um, but that he learned all these languages and he's never shared the Kelpian language. And he's always been fearful of revealing his alienness, Matt, because right now Star Trek is Star Trekking. Yeah. This, by the way, Pete, under the, under the specter of life support, having gone from 60% to 47%. So we have ticking clock and the Star Trek number. Um, he, he wants his story shared. He wants a favor uh, in his passing, after his passing. Can his personal logs that he has kept, the detailed personal logs, can she catalog them so that one day Kelpians may know his journey? He fills in the tale as a refugee uh, shown. Uh, he, he was the universe of aliens, uh, that their dreams of something better were something that inspired him. Every story he heard created a space in him to feel more, to love more, to help those in need. And she notes how em uh, empathic he is, which ends up being story seeding for later. But mm -hmm. in the best of writing and certainly the best of Star Trek writing, it also is just in the moment and a lesson and a character weirdo, you know, plastic face, pretend TV show. It's everything at once. Um, and Saru further shares that signing up into Starfleet meant that he could never return home. Uh, but just when you might get a little tear in your eye, ah, he feels the increases of UV light, the intensity and the frequency increasing. So that's that for that sad moment. There's a dual story clock in this episode with the knowledge now that Spock is still at maximum warp. And if they're stuck in the position from the stasis field much longer, they're going to lose his uh, signature to find him. So uh, Burnham is sent to engineering uh, where of course she can't get in. Reno is ready with a torch to cut off May without uh, Tilly losing so much as a freckle. But uh, if it's a symbiote, Matt, if this is venom, uh, it could kill her. Yes, Pete, is this the long hoped for, uh, truth that the Star Trek uh, universe takes place in Marvel 616. I don't know. Uh, but uh, there's a better idea. Use the tech to tech the tech to hear what May wants. And uh, that inspires Burnham talking. Wait a minute. Just as Stamets wants to talk to May, Burnham needs to talk to the Sphere. Everybody's in uh, inspired. Burnham uh, goes back to the science lab to Saru. Is this uh, a first contact attempt. Oh, Saro has been so blind. The UV wavelengths are repeating like letters. He sees them everywhere. Then Pete, because they know they're about to have an act break, the sphere isn't looking for first contact. It wants last contact and is going to die. Yeah, really eloquent way to twist it around. Um, in engineering, they're going to give Tilly a cortical implant here, but they don't have the most modern solutions. So they're going to drill a hole in her skull, no laser scalpel. They'll have to do what they do. 
Uh, Detmer reveals that she was able to raise shields, important later on. Uh, and Reese tells them that he's reading an energy buildup from inside the sphere that is spiked 10,000 degrees Kelvin. Oh, Matt? no, no, don't say it, Pete. <laughs> it's ruined everything. Uh, yes, uh, Pete. It, spoiler it, alert, it hasn't. <laughs> Pete, Kelvin can still be an objective way to measure great temperatures. Can uh, I tell you I got into a fight with someone on Twitter this week whose Twitter handle is Kelvin Truther, um, who actually tweeted at me. It, it was it was odd. And looking back at a couple of this person's tweets, they really don't understand Star Trek. Well, that's a lot to unpack there. That doesn't change the universal notion of absolute zero to which the Kelvin uh, temperature scale is attuned. Uh, the sphere going from 10,000 to 20,000 Kelvin, just like that, Pete. So as you can see, the Kelvin effect doubling here. Um, Pike gets ready to fire. That's when Saru shows up. It's your classic, do a bad thing. No, wait, belay that order. Uh, Saru says that the sphere also may be dying. Uh, he's asked to explain here, Pete, we get the connect the dots in the best sense. Empathy is hardwired into Kelpians, and Saru feels something. He knows how to communicate. Uh, they better do it fast because they have only six minutes to keep tracking Spock. As you mentioned before, Pete, we have dual dueling story clocks counting down to disaster. And if they power down the concern that Pike has, that might be just what they need to be finished off by the sphere. But they adjust the view screen to ultraviolet light. The universal translator is overloaded. Imagine what it knows. And this, Burnham points out, falls under Discovery's original mission as a science vessel. Um, I could have done without that line just because that's like saying – I mean, look, that's if you didn't watch season one. Well, and I see again why they would okay. need to to, you know, put these little nuggets in there. I, I know you're you're but I watch all of this. But at the same time, not everybody does. That's not even my complaint. My complaint is that's like saying that's like saying that, Pete, we are in a life raft. OK, <laughs> and, and there, there's six of us on a life raft a la Alfred Hitchcock's lifeboat. And things are bad. And then all of a sudden, uh, I don't know, there's birds flying overhead. And it's like, guys, stop panicking, okay? I was originally trained as a bird specialist. It's like, yeah, but at the moment, there's a big giant sphere trying to kill everyone. I know there's a science mission, and that's important. I know that there's also the ethical, you know, new worlds, new civilizations, exploration. I buy all of that. It's just, this is not the exact moment to be pointing out, wait guys, let's science. Oh, we also might die in a couple minutes. Yes, it is. So it's a perfect time to go back to engineering where, uh, they're going to use an amplified cortical implant. And then we get nice Stamets again, who wants to know and distract Tilly with her favorite song. She starts to sing major Tom, which tremendous product placement as well matt that what do you know the cast of discovery sang on carpool karaoke just last week add to that jeff russo's wonderful uh harmonization with the score as yes. they as they sing i mean it's just 
it, it, it's a really, really wonderful moment that I think initially in, in the opening bars, it was like, I mean, look, okay. You want to say that she's a, she's, you know, uh, a classic rock fan, many hundreds of years removed. That's a okay. Pete, there's, there's a, you know, there's, there's people who love, you know, Baroque and classical music and all that now. So fine. I think it could have risked being like, Hey kids, we know the tunes, but it just comes off as so authentic, so heartfelt. Um, and I think that in addition to the performance, I really, really think it's it's the music, Jeff Russo's music, that helps take you out of this pop music moment and brings it into Star Trek. And it's just phenomenal. Scored tremendously throughout the episode, not just in this moment. Um, from May, with the harmonic setup here, we learn that she is from a species known as the Josep. They lived harmoniously until some alien interloper, Matt. Boo. Right? At random intervals, ravaging their ecosystem irreparably. So, wait, did you come for help uh not from you because it's you interlopa it was beauty that killed the beast um it's this wonderful moment i think of realization for stamets he who was just finger wagging reno a short while ago as to her uh-huh. misunderstanding of the role of antimatter and dilithium um so some perspective there also pete behind the scenes i think every single person watching is like Oh, and that's why they're going to officially not just ban the spore drive, but they're going to officially rip it out and put it in the garbage and say, no, highly classified, because it's not just a secret thing or it's not just this or such that it is hurting people in a way that the Federation cannot tolerate or hurting creatures. Um, So good news, Pete. Message received. We're not going to use it anymore. No problem, right? Nope, says May. She has plans for Tilly. Uh, Reno blasts Tilly, but May then uh, envelops her face. Yeah. Uh, right before this, though, that she found the memory of May Ahern, someone sympathetic that uh, if she had a second chance, she'd be able to communicate with Tilly. And though um, Stamets, who you know has developed the more sympathetic side of his personality, asked for forgiveness here, asked to let Tilly go. These other plans we'll discuss a little bit later on. Uh, But what do you know? Everything's going to hell at the bridge here. They're at solar temperatures now with the sphere. Uh, It's ready to collapse. And the transmission is its way of dying without fading away and being unremembered. Uh, They're preparing to lower shields, and uh, at the same time, Pike orders that the core be ready to uh, be ejected so that they could ride a shockwave. It's at this point that Saru takes shields that all resources go to comms, and the downloading comes across 20% above maximum, um, and there's not enough distance, Matt, they're still stuck in the stasis field. Oh, what will happen? Pete, what will happen is this. It explodes anyway, but uh, suddenly, somehow, they're not destroyed. Saru notes that the light is like music. They're all amazed. I really like the little 
moment where Pike is looking at the view screen too. He feels similarly. Mm -hmm. I like that they also then don't cut to a view of it. I mean, we see it on the on the screen. We see it through the window a little bit. They don't hide away from it. But this most beautiful thing, which is like music, this this visual thing that is like a sound. I like that they don't linger on it because you. How do you create that? I don't know. They just give you a fleeting little glimpse and let the characters describe it in your imagination so the result is my view of it is different than your view pete etc cetera, etc cetera, because it's in our minds but how are they alive the spheres stasis field reversed and pushed uh, the discovery away it was a final act to save them and to tell its story in engineering the blob is uh torched open and uh tilly has been slimed they communicate well, she's with in there like a terror dog, Pete. This is clearly the <laughs> Ghostbusters episode. May was a ghost. Tilly is now in a terror dog. She's slimed. It's all connected. Yes. Uh, Saru then turns to uh, Burnham. And if we've just uh, blown up Genesis, Matt, now it's time. You better get down to his quarters. Better hurry. Pete, the highlight of this moment for me was not that they were going to go through the the story mechanics of pretending he's going to die. More on that in a moment. Spoiler alert. In the next scene, I was questioning whether they were actually about to do it. And this was a big me secret. Me too. <laughs> um, but when, they, when the bridge crew stands, that's... The, I mean, first of all, I think it's very authentic. And it's very real in the moment, regardless of they're trying to sell the notion that he really is about to die. Um, but it's... It's this wonderful moment that has this story impact of, of as I said, this was the first moment where it's like, oh, wait, so this isn't going to be like, and it's all okay, the end. Um, we see Saru's quarters. They're filled with plants everywhere. I wonder if Lorca would have been cool with that a year ago, but um, Saru reflects on life defined by rank and uniform until he was just that, this continuing the thread of him having reject his Kelpian uh, ethnicity burnham says that she found himself among the stars she he found his strength and he has saved so many lives nonetheless it is time and he directs her to a kelpian knife he needs her to sever his ganglia and end his suffering it will let him die peacefully before pain and madness overtake him and this the whole scene is well very very well presented sonequa martin green's acting is what made me convinced in the moment both times i watched it even yeah. after the second time that he was about to die for real yeah and given that there's actually no footage in any of the trailers of him from anything else really made me begin to question would they do this although they've seeded in this episode matt there are memories of people in the network um Again, asserting the possibility of uh, kind of like a Katra, Matt, a, a universal soul that, that somebody could be brought back, which is very interesting from a story standpoint. But yeah, uh, I'm not going to lie that I got more than tearful uh, during this part of the episode. Um, also, can we praise the... Uh, what we normally don't see beneath the uniform with the prosthetics for uh, Saru, highly detailed, not to mention ripped. 
Uh, yes, Saru ultra ripped Pete. Um, I think the prosthetic design is wonderful. My only complaint is this, and I, and let me start with the real world. Doug Jones is a very tall, very lanky guy, and he has described in the past how, for once, he doesn't need to wear a muscle suit or a butt suit or whatever to change his body that they were like, great, uh, you're going to spend enough time putting on the gloves, putting on the mask. We don't need to now pad your body out because you look like a weirdo alien in real life, you know, the rest of your body. So I understand that that's what they've gone with and that that makes him look more interesting and that makes getting ready for the day easier and i understand too that you want his shirt off because it's a this is a big moment and and whatnot i just could not stop seeing though that his doug jones's prosthetic sweatshirt is bigger than doug jones wearing the uniform which again i understand why that is It is, it is physically the case because it is physically the case I just kind of felt like, let me put it this way, Pete. I'm glad they didn't have him doing a lot of walking around. There was one slight moment where he moved a bit, and I felt like it was like a football player's pads where like it doesn't quite move like the rest of him, which is true because he's wearing a very detailed, very well-designed prosthetic sweatshirt. So I just needed to get that out. I needed to geek out about the slight <laughs> finger wag there. Well, the perspiration, the not quite healthy color to his pallor that they give. And, you know, as emotional as this is, as uh, Burnham goes to sever the ganglia and to put him out of his misery, she breaks down emotionally, which from a story sense is the hesitation that winds up saving him. Is, is it truly inevitable, Matt? Uh, of course he'd do it himself. Uh, but, but he's too weak. And Doug Jones as the chameleon that he is, not just in this, I can't help but think how uncomfortable this getup is, but then having to do this extraordinarily emotional scene just nails it in every regard. Yeah, I know I know Doug Jones has talked about kind of somewhat with a sense of self-deprecation that like Part of the reason he's the famous Doug Jones monster monster suit guy is because he'll sit there long enough to put it on and work a day in it and take it off. Like, you know, like he's not saying he's the best actor in the world, although I think he's very, very talented. But I think in his estimation, he's the guy who complained the least and kept getting jobs where he has to wear weirdo stuff and that that's become bread and butter. But he is so good here and I to go back to a comment you made Pete about the sweat on him I was off on this whole mental tangent watching the episode like did they need to start to add not not sweat but did they need to add a little more glisten to his makeup because I'm looking at the, these other actors and I'm like okay well obviously they're all wearing you know like normal human makeup for TV but how much does that mimic the oils in our skin and how much is is the spritzes on his makeup here just add this layer of authenticity that is that's through the roof but pete enough about the makeup here good news it's not the last time we're going to see doug jones in makeup um just as she brings the knife to but not to my eyes at although she says barely touching bottom line is um she's brings it to the ganglia but they fall off on their own uh this right after i should mention pete that she is told by saru that she really should rebuild that bond with spock and she makes the promise 
She does. So story serviced all the way around in addition to the emotional flourish should add that that the the knife was, of course, Serana's. So she is informed of all of the familial uh, ties. And what do you know? 15 episodes in the first season where we begin with Burnham and Saru as uh, first officer and subordinate officer on the Shenzhou, kind of this haha brother sister relationship uh, to at complete odds with Burnham's betrayal of uh, Captain Giorgio. Now, brother and sister once again. 19 episodes later wonderful story arc there uh, of course it all ends with some happiness some laughter saru doesn't completely understand why the ganglia have fallen off we go quickly to sickbay saru feels unlike he ever has before he has no fear the fear is gone he also feels his own power for dr pollard that's enough she certifies him for duty uh to burn him uh, it is noted that uh, despite speaking 94 languages, for Saru, words are not enough in this moment. Uh, we get some science update here. Burnham shares that the sphere didn't just give them languages. It's given them so many adventures and its history. So now Saru has a new future. Then Pete really wonderfully circling back to the brightest star short trek. Uh, Saru now questions the great balance. Uh, he knows he cannot go home after promising to uphold General Order 1, but... Now he knows that the basic truth of that society is a lie. What does this all mean? Some faith implications there, which we could certainly discuss in our next segment. Let's head to the ready room where Pike says that the find from the uh, sphere is akin to a stellar uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. What was the cost, though? You know, he's grumpy at having lost. At first I thought, uh, uh, pardon me, at first I thought, uh, Saru, but instead he's concerned about having lost the tracking for Spock. But good news, the the sphere tracked Spock's shuttle, and it's time for Discovery to follow. Uh, from now on, Pike will work to keep uh, Burnham clear of Spock, but she's had that change of heart. She wants Spock to know she'll be there for him no matter what. Circles within circles in this episode, really tightly constructed. There are, and uh, we conclude the episode in engineering. Stamets needs to close the door close the door on the network forever. Matilli hears May, sees May. We kind of see a flash of May in the hallway, but Tilly's detecting May. That's when Stamets and Reno start to realize that they were dosed too. It's a really subtle rollout of the weird getting high effects as, as things start to happen. Pete, they start to trip Silicon Spheres, man. Yeah, and the eyes, the haziness around the margins of the image. Once they inoculate themselves, they open up the blob, and Tilly's gone. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. It's hot, it's heavy, it's the blob. Yeah, this reveal that May is... A, an organism from the mycelial network, the Josep, uh, that they've come here, that she's come here, maybe going rogue, to uh, to take Stamets out. Other plans for Tilly still not revealed. 
not 100% convinced of the the threat nature from an evil standpoint of May, but not convinced that it's not. Certainly the way the episode ends, not only is it really, really phenomenal setup for uh, the next episode, but it suggests, um, I don't know, it's, it, it does suggest that that more uh, ominous possibility there of May, just beyond, hey, message received, okay, we won't do it again. Uh, Pete, moving on to the sphere as a threat, I like the restraint that they showed when first there was the the exterior shot of it. It had me thinking of the, the Doomsday Machine, and I think that they could have done some cutesy-wootsy stuff like, you know, before it explodes, a little sphere ejects out the back. Is it the Borg? Or it goes away cone-shaped. Is it setting up, is it a baby doomsday machine? And instead, it's just, it is what it is. It is this old thing. Is it living? Is it not? Whatever it is, it has reached the end of its life. It has intersected with our Star Trek story. And it doesn't need to be wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Maybe one day there'll be a new chief engineer. One wonders if there has to be some kind of connection to the Red Angel signal mystery, given that they're on their way after Spock. This specifically pulls them out of warp. You know, would it would it have pulled any other ship? Um, Time may tell. We'll have to see. But I love that in this second season of Star Trek Discovery, we're not so much on the evil threat tangent every week this week it is Cole or whomever but it's one of misunderstood scientific phenomenon again the original mission of this ship Matt well and of course the crux of that threat from the sphere is communication and I wonder too Pete if in a subtle way, is the episode suggesting, particularly with the, the Tower of Babel section on the bridge there, is how we communicate with each other sometimes a threat? Oh, I completely think that that's the metaphor they're going for. Pete, on to our long-range sensors segment, and we have Spock literally on the long-range sensors... When will we get Spock? Uh, not next episode. Uh, you would know better than me, Pete, <laughs> in that I don't watch the previews. Although I when will they, say this. When they cast him uh, around this time in secret and uh, needed him to do voiceover work for lines they had written in the first uh, two episodes. Concerning my not watching the previews, uh, I, Pete, I think CBS All Access, which by the way this week worked. As it should. Wonder of wonders. Chief Louvier must be behind the scenes. Um, when I rewatched the episode with my daughter, what I thought was the end of the episode, I had when I watched it the first time, I clicked off. You know, Tilly, no. Camera dollies back through the mess. Boom, cut to black. Um, I quick turn it off because I didn't want to see the preview. I turn it off and she's like, wait, did you, did you want me to not see what's next because it's scary? I'm like, no, I think it's the preview. <laughs> then I was like, wait, they didn't, you know. So I go back because the way it opens, it's not like, da, 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 da. Next week, they start with Tilly, eyes opening, where is she? And then it says on the next Star Trek Discovery. So they oh, got me. You know, so you me. know Tilly's alive, Matt. Oh, that's been ruined for you now. 
now my childhood has been ruined. Oh, Pete, here's another long-range sensor thing, and I think it's half in story, half in the writer's room. You mentioned before this idea, you know, will will the sphere tie back to the seven signals? To me, I feel like the show has now signaled to us. You thought we were going to do one signal per episode for the next seven episodes, probably climaxing with Spock showing up, you know, in signal six or seven. No, no, I would lean towards this is this was not a seven signal thing. This was just wrong place, wrong time, have an adventure of learning and opportunity. Um, has the pace in your mind, has the pace been reordered to a point where who knows, maybe the seventh signal is the season finale. I think it's all, um, connected in terms of what they're presenting that this sphere had a hundred thousand years worth of data and it's going to take Starfleet, uh, scientists generations to catalog it all. Maybe it has stuff on the Red Angel and the signals. Oh, this occurred earlier that we find out in a later episode. They're clearly meeting it out so as to fill the full episode order. Let's remember, too, that season two started at 13 episodes and was added a 14th episode. Kind of like two episodes were added to the end of season one to get us to 15. So more Star Trek, always welcome. You want to stretch this any which way you want, given the results so far, go for it. Matt, I want to talk a little bit about number one here. Uh, first off, still no name for number one. There's actually quite a bit of uh, fan hope out there that when revealed, it'll be Majel. I think that's the only name that you could give her, or Barrett, if you want to call her Commander Barrett. Um, I think, though, I, w I would rather the show walk the high wire act of not naming her at all and just seamlessly connecting with our recollections of the cage. Um, that said, I, I don't. I don't have the sense that she is in many, many episodes of, let's say, the second half of this season. I could be completely wrong. I think the more episodes she's in, the more difficult a high-wire act it is. And at a certain point, does it become the story just getting too cute in order to not name her? Does it become Pete, like from one of the Austin Powers movies, you know, a story version of, and here are the coconuts. Look, we're working really hard to not show you a thing. Um but yeah, I think the only name you can give her is some sort of nod to, to Majel Barrett. You don't go out and get Rebecca Romaine to have her appear in one or two episodes. She's going to recur. One has to wonder, nay, expect that her resourcefulness, that what she's gathering, that her concern of, you know, unprecedented classification of Spock's case, that this is somehow connected to section 31. Pete, there's no question in my mind that uh, even in addition to, oh, there's a section 31 Giorgio series that's going to happen at some point. There's no question in my mind that the somewhere in the second half of this season is going to be the intersection with section 31, uh, whether it's great or small, whether it's just, oh, they're the other ship on the hunt for Spock or whether it's, this increasing rollout, this increasing understanding that we have of 
fingerprints of a conspiracy, you know, it being level one and there being, you know, those people who have been alerted and things of that sort. This is, they know that there's more to this story uh, just as we do. We, of course, know because Spock is a good guy. Um, but there's tons of little mysteries being hinted at here. Interesting that the Enterprise is the only ship in the fleet having problems as a result of these signals. And that does a couple things. One, it retcons the holographic screens. We never see any in the original series. Check. Also keeps us uh, from needing to see the Enterprise now, building up again that dramatic tension and the the canonogists, Matt, who maintain that if the colors don't look like 1966, my brain will pulse like a Telosian. <laughs> um, you're absolutely right. And I think that not only does it, as you say, does it retcon the screen issue. Uh, let's not forget, Pete. People sometimes, people, very smart people sometimes forget the screens on the Enterprise D holographic, just not appearing so but the screens themselves were holographic that's why he had all those side angles of the sides of people's faces um so fine you kind of check that as a story box but it has me now wondering again do we end up getting a very lightly redesigned version of the classic bridge or do we go full kind of not full redesign like throw the baby out with the bathwater? but does it does it get this you know the kurtzman kind of um shoulder shrug which i'm not i don't object to but the shoulder shrug of like you know what some things aren't going to be spray painted bubble wrap with you know uh silly putty on them to be an alien whatever to be an alien swimsuit we're gonna do a more high-end version here i don't know i don't know what the right answer is but i feel like that's the big kind of fan geek question behind the scenes hopefully hopefully we're most focused on story and things like that but i want to see what this bridge looks like I mean, they're showing us the chair each week in the credits. It'll be a redesigned, updated, tastefully done, respectfully acknowledged bridge when we see it. I think you could probably get away with making it a little bit bigger, if only just because then it'll be a bit more, bit more suitable for uh, getting cameras in there and widescreen and things like that. And if you replace maybe some of the most aged things, you know, like instead of it being random blinky lights, if it's a flat screen touchscreen that has similar blinking lights, I think if it's just that kind of put it through the wash of 50 years, but not change it too much. I, I think there's a sweet spot that, that can be hit. Uh, flip side is Pete, if You've subscribed to these many episodes. If you watch these episodes, you know, uh, thus far, is this really going to be the thing that breaks the camel's back? Like, oh man, they showed us the bridge in this one episode. Now I can't watch the show about the discovery anymore. So we shall see. They've shown us Spock's quarters. They've shown us a hallway on the Enterprise. Nobody's died yet, Matt, from, you know, childhood ruining. Uh, it's kind of like Vahari. It's a big, it's a big lie. But, um, <laughs> You know, a couple more things with number one here. That really pregnant line, I'm not letting him go without a fight, are number one and Spock a thing? She got a space boo? I think it's just her her appreciation for him as a longtime member of the crew. And I think if nothing else, that line is meant to prop up not the 
uh, I'm not going to let him go. I think in my mind, the emphasis is more without a fight. The fact that there is this weird fight that she's trying to get to the bottom of that's going on behind the scenes where all these things that add up are in opposition to him and she's standing by her crewmate. So when Burnham speaks to Pike about not wanting to be involved with Spock, she says that uh, Amanda suggested she's probably the last person who should insert herself into the problem. Arrested Development uh, narrator voice, she didn't. Um, I still puzzle over the way Amanda left in the last episode. It was Which it was they show to us in the previous yeah. week here, and you're like, the only thing I can think of is the very resourceful number one has help from a certain pointy-eared ambassador who's married to a human woman who left angry and will find Spock. That's probably likely. And I would certainly welcome having, uh, having those three characters all in the same scene together. I wonder if maybe it's so direct. Like, I feel like you could go that direction or you could go introduction of brand new character or introduction of brand old character, you know, like we're going to get Harry Mudd to help us or something like that. That kind of, makes the universe a little bit bigger in this in this search for spock the universal translator malfunction angle was really cute and clever for this episode but that their lips move to say the languages that they're uh malfunctioning from i have to wonder matt did they look in the writer's room and say well, we can't make this like a misdubbed Kung Fu movie and Burnham is speaking English and Klingon is coming out, even though that's really how it would have happened. As a piece of staged drama, as a piece of acting, as a piece of memorization, as a piece of research, uh, editing, etc. It is a wonderful moment. It's a Star Trek moment in the something that can't happen in the real world. I think it's not just Star Trek. You know, it's a great science fiction moment. Something that can, can't happen in the real world happens because of the magic of science fiction. I think if you open up that hood a little bit and go, wait a minute, language is sounds. I understand that the universal translator localization effect on the bridge is all fooey, but can't someone go up to Detmer right next to her and say, push the stop button like those are sounds separate from the languages being spoken and the fact that that isn't possible to me that doesn't make sense i mean you can train a parrot to say polywana cracker that still means that it makes those sounds and if you know that if you know the english language then it makes sense and if you don't then it's just sounds the show kind of has it both ways here at the end of the day it's this great kind of set piece of chaos and oh my goodness can you believe that you know that the the guy who plays uh bryce had to learn three lines of welsh and things like that it's more fun than it is realistic but pete this is also a show that you know a lot of the science is not science with the capital s like you can't really transport people at least yet so if you want to show us if you want to say well that's real but this is fake then you're kind of missing the point i think of science fiction the Josep species is introduced here with uh, May's communication of that fact. 
Matt has now seen seven seconds of a preview, knowing that we're going to learn more about that. Um, I guess the question is, is this just May or is this entire species trying to uh, to fight back to recover? Certainly one does get the sense that May is the tip of the sphere. Uh, she talks about the, the great efforts taken. I know we saw it as the green spore, but the kind of great efforts taken to, to reach out and to stop the attack and to fight back. Uh, and certainly from her perspective, I don't think that reaching out, I don't think the fighting back is, uh, is necessarily the wrong course from her perspective. We know Starfleet's willing to hear it and wants to do the right thing and all that. Um, so I will be interested to see how much time is spent, uh, with Tilly caught in the upside down Pete. Uh, Hey, kids are going <laughs> to love it. She's going to be all in musty alternateville. Um, Something tells me this is going to be next week's story, and that's it. Um, I feel, too, like there's a little bit of the habit in the writer's room, even last season, which was more serialized. It, I think there still was a sense of, like, this week we deal with this chunk. Okay, move on. This Next week we deal with a slightly different chunk and move on. Um, I can't imagine Tilly's caught in the upside down for too long. Culber watch, Matt, uh, ramped up a bit this week, though he doesn't show up. Uh, and we've not seen him since the season two premiere that may says that she grabbed onto the memory of may Ahern and used that clearly again, opens up a possibility through which Culber might reemerge. Yeah. I mean, you think of, uh, Spock in the movies, you think of the same exact trajectory that data was on in the next generation movies. Um, and certainly in other Star Trek settings where it's, you know, the clone or the copy or the this or it was the alternate one that died, you know, kind of all versions of that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to get to get Culber, Culber copied, Culber Xeroxed out of the memory left in the mycelial network. And maybe for an episode or two, he's like, soup? What is soup? Why have you taken uh carrots and turn them into mush and then that's a fun little thing for a couple episodes and by you know the end of you know by by two episodes later it's just same old Colburn. and we're gonna move on from there and kind of never return to i'm actually the copy of a copy and it's wacky and weird may's plans for tilly include abducting her will this be some kind of uh, education of what they're dealing with in the mycelial network, or is it something more malevolent? I think that's difficult to answer, and here's why. We know that Federation ethics, Starfleet ethics, mean that Stamets promising to shut it down, everybody, except for Section 31, but most of that society will completely agree and say, you know, we must sacrifice so that others might live. It's just baked into the Gene Roddenberry philosophy. But here's the flip side, Pete. Stamets is like, you know, is like the the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. If the the Josep are you know, are the American Navy sitting there in port, so I understand their perspective of needing to make some sort of resounding response here, which makes me think it's going to be 
to be malevolent because from their perspective they were invaded they were ravaged it is a dire situation um i'm not quite sure how that then translates to and here's the gift of colber 2.0 but again i think the two are very closely related all right i'm gonna deep dive hard here i need you to stay with me okay okay i'm, I'm all ears so the Kaminarian conspiracy officially blown the lid off this week, which, again, if listeners have heard our podcast for The Brightest Star, Short Trek, um, they know that I floated the possibility that the bowel don't exist, that this is all some big way to uh, stunt the growth of uh, the Kelpian species or that there was another conspiracy afoot. And now that your ganglia just fall off, you don't go mad, everything's a lie, we can return to Kaminar at some point. Will it be this season? Uh, I don't know. Definitely something on the plate for a potential season three, Matt, described by an industry trade variety as a fait accompli which means it's going to happen, you know, when all these Star Trek shows don't happen, that the naysayers and, and dumb YouTubers and, you know, not my genes Trek people keep forwarding. But follow me even further. So remember that uh, Prime uh, Philippa Giorgio was the one who discovered um, the signal that uh, Saru was creating with bowel tech uh air quotes around that and that she was the one that came and scooped him up and we have this lovely parallel of what uh immigrants go through refugees go through and the proper and right and human outpouring of love and understanding instead of alienness and walls and space walls and, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, um, things that come in the way barriers, whatever you're going to call them. Could it be possible that the section 31 storyline is going to merge there? We never saw the body of Giorgio after she was left on the Klingon ship of the dead. I know that she was, consumed she was eaten by klingons but you know what we never saw a baby bump with laurel is prime georgiou somewhere on ice we have emperor georgiou in play could this be something that comes about if not later this season in a third season they say that the section 31 um show will be ready to go after a third season, uh, could that be the subject of it? Is is other real Georgiou still alive? Could she have been complicit herself in a conspiracy to kind of keep the Kelpians, to keep Kaminar down for some strategic reason? Could we retcon she was not this wonderful person? Could somehow Emperor Georgiou emerge as the better, safer version do we recast the actress and get mary kate and ashley olsen to play the two georgios i don't know <laughs> pete i think 
let me put it this way. I think that the intention of the writing in season one was for her to be dead, dead, dead. Unlike, say, the presumption that Prime Lorca is dead, but, eh, you know, um, or even, you know, the wiggle room of uh, uh, Mirror Lorca fell into the the sun and disintegrated, but maybe that was a transportation thing. You know, I, I think there's less wiggle room that said, the lack of the lack of seeing a body does you know i mean you could in one scene say oh i quick got out because x and it was replaced with you know ham hocks and those dumb klingons don't know any difference um i don't know but i what i do know is this returning to kaminar or the topic of kaminar um i'm okay with the prime directive as that general order one as the guiding principle to me it makes sense now have we had tons of fun stories where they've needed to you know juke and jive and get around it yes was it a compelling episode when i was seven to see wesley crusher play ball and go into the flowers where he shouldn't and now he has to be killed by the people who oil each other and wear napkins and in the background have kissy faces a lot uh when they're not getting ready to kill children for playing in the flowers sure but to me, as we discussed in, in the Brightest Star podcast, we have examples even in our, in our real world in the last couple months of the disastrous effects that can happen when a uh, more advanced culture invades a, a, you know, one that is more primitive. And that's not kind of in a judgment sense, but just all the trappings of our interconnected world when that comes down on some of these isolated tribes and isolated islands and things like that in our real world how you know we don't improve their lives by bringing them the things that have improved our lives what we do is ruin a culture and as terrible as i think life is on kaminar and as as much as my heart goes out to these fictional people i kind of feel like they need to figure out themselves that this is a flawed way of existing just as the vulcans figured out that all these emotions for them were what was causing the problems and they evolved uh, in their way. And just as the Andorians figured out uh, whatever their problems were and developed technology and, you know, still kept a healthy sense of suspicion for those Vulcans that would never spy on them except for when the Vulcans do. And just the way there's a tremendous history on, on this planet that continues to this day of some people being treated very, very terribly. And we work to improve that when it comes to, the notion of Kaminar, okay, fine. The thing that their faith is based on is a lie. I kind of say, oh, well, too bad. You need to still continue to evolve as a species in order to join the galactic community. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Pete, let's start with the results of a poll that we ran on Twitter. Uh, what did you think of episode 204? Uh, the choices were four stars, classic, small C, Trek, three stars, Shroom Pizza, two stars, Babel, one star, I'm an old sphere. Uh, 7% said one star, uh, 3% said two stars, 9% said three stars, and a very, very healthy 81% said four stars. So I think we're both in that four star category. Uh, from other responses here, we got a tweet from at Big Killin. That's James. He said, amazing writing. I want more of every character. Engineering got jokes. I have a tweet from uh, Michelle that is ML Huber writes on Twitter. It made me cry. Cry. I hate it, but I loved it. 
a series of tweets here from Karen Chu. That's at Karen Chu. Uh, I know it had its issues, but I was totally riveted. I honestly realized I wasn't breathing at one point. And the main storyline seemed extremely classic. I love the whole scene, the whole language bonkers bonanza. I actually got emotional over the Michael Saru scene, like real tears. And I can't even describe the multitude of feelings during the space odyssey scene. Magic, I tell you. I have to watch it again, but I have to recover first. Lots of love here for this episode. Fans are speaking. Yes, Pete. We also have a tweet here from uh, Arthur Liu. That's Arthurist on Twitter who says of the poll, it's one through four rating system. Wrong. Five stars. Yep. Uh, tweet from Andre Yeager who says kudos to Doug Jones and that performance. Very emotional. Ms. Green deserves kudos as well. The show just keeps getting better and better. Uh, penultimately, Pete, a tweet from our pal. Captain Jen Phillips, that's Jen Phillips 721 on Twitter. Loved it. So reminiscent of old school Trek. Just fantastic. Uh, then Pete, some tweets here. Put on your thinking cap. Time to hear from Annie Harrington. That's at any time left. Uh, she says, I love that they turned Lorca's imposing power structure reinforcing descent silencing ready room into a science lab where people standing on all sides of the table collaborate thoughtfully to find solutions. Seems like it's meant to communicate something. Hmm, I wonder what it could be a resistance against. <laughs> uh, she says, I also like that they addressed Linus's relationship to the Universal Translator. I used to wonder if there'd ever be an in-universe explanation for why it doesn't translate the Breen, uh, but yet so many people seem to understand them. I think, Pete, there's this, there's this fine line where the show has it both ways and is it always logical and is it already always in-universe no, but I think she's right here that to, to go, oh, sometimes the thing doesn't work. It's mm -hmm. as good as anything. Yeah. And then I know she had another tweet about the brain. Was it a brain helmet that yes. we saw in the um, the Harry Mudd short trek, The Escape Artist? I think much like with a Tellarite, when we don't know it's a Tellarite until they tell us it's a Tellarite because it doesn't look like a 1960s Tellarite. We, we just don't know until they tell us. <laughs> you don't tell us about the Tellarite. Pete, what feedback have you been hearing? On Facebook, Matt, on the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, Mary Jane Dizak writes in here, I was distressed to hear that trolls had visited your iTunes podcast and left behind low ratings. Well, troll is too much ni uh, too nice of a word for someone who would do such a thing because they aim to destroy not just antagonize the youtube videos are evidence of that something that i haven't seen posted online is the fact that cbs all access had a huge spike in subscriptions with the initial broadcast of disco and there has been another spike with the start of the second season i read that in a full page article in this week's TV Guide, the print magazine. So why no green light yet? I'm nervous. BTW, I've also posted a five-star review for you on iTunes using a nickname. I can do another if they'll let me. Another great cast, guys. Thank you for those kind words there. We always love those iTunes reviews. Uh, I, uh, Pete, I don't want to be a naysayer. I just want to point out an objective fact. It is CBS All Access that has said it has had a record increase in subscriptions. Um, 
First of all, is that truthful? I don't know. It's only measured by CBS All Access. Is it a record? I kind of would think so because the show that came before it was The Good Fight, and I have no beef with that show, but I think that has one level of profile, and a Star Trek show has another. But is it is CBS All Access now uh, self-sustainable because of Star Trek subscriptions? I don't know. Only CBS All Access does. It's the same tactic that Netflix uses, which, by the way, Pete, smart people smarter than you and I, uh, there's an article in The Hollywood Reporter basically saying, yeah, other ways to measure Netflix makes it seem that maybe the show you that had 40 million viewers, uh, it's more like eight, which is a, a lot, but not the number one show on television in the last 15 yeah. years and things of that sort. So I just encourage all our listeners, just because you're just because you're looking at a piece of news uh star trek or otherwise we'll stick with star trek just because you're looking at star trek news with a critical eye that doesn't mean that you are one of these you know red-haired youtube naysayers just be easy a on the aware. red hair matt some of us used to have it hair that was red uh, I, I just mentioned that pete because one of the most vocal youtubers but i digress um just be a little aware that they themselves are the ones declaring that they have gotten victory with a number of X when X equals the number that they won't share with you, but it's a really good one. Yeah. Oh, and they all have inside sources and we only know that spoiler Pete has inside sources, but hopefully a little earlier in the uh, podcast here, we've assuaged Mary Jane's anxiety that variety is saying a a third season renewal is pretty much a done deal all but announced. Uh, that being said that, uh, well, Hmm, we have these spikes when star Trek is on. So give us the lower decks, give us Picard, give us uh Georgiou show, give us a project that, uh, is being worked on by, uh, Marvel runaways, uh, showrunners, uh, Stephanie Savage and Scott Schwartz uh, behind the scenes, which I maintain we may never see. But you know what? It's another show they're developing. Um, I feel so, like we have not had an update on the Starfleet Academy show in a long time. So and, and, look, and sometimes shows get developed yeah. to nothing. Yeah, and that's that's fine. You you develop more things than actually uh, will ever see the light of day. I mean, look at the development that's going on in the star Wars universe right now between the game of Thrones showrunners developing their, their own set of movies. Uh, the, the trilogy that's being spun off with, uh, Ryan Johnson, uh, all these other projects, TV, the, the 58,000 scripts that, um, Rick Berman has for live action TV shows now that just infest his basement, uh, that, that he's, he's going to make a fort out of, I mean, you develop more than actually makes it, but they know CBS knows what is a thing that helps us to try to be profitable star Trek. Uh, I would maintain another, uh, 50 plus year old franchise in the twilight zone is probably going to help beginning on uh, April fool's day. And what with an Oscar winner, uh, behind it in Jordan Peele, a guy who's going to have, uh, a, a big hit in the month of March with us, um, you know, and bring more subscribers that the good fight and star Trek might not already bring in. Um, 
whether or not CBS All Access can fully sustain itself in the long term remains to be seen. That there exists this partnership with Netflix is uh, heartening. Um, but again, Netflix continues to show chinks in the armor, particularly in a year where it's going to face its grandest test ever with Disney+. Plus. I have every high hope for Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. In my mind, Pete, the overlap of three or four weeks, three weeks when Twilight Zone will be out. Uh, it'll drop two episodes on April 1st. The next one is like a week and a half later. Um, I, To me, that's the testing ground time. I'm willing to uh, pause my all-access subscription until more Star Trek comes if Twilight Zone is doing anything less than being rod serling amazing level i will happily go back and watch the other the other episodes when star trek returns and when i dust off my all-access subscription am i open-minded that it might be so great that i will continue to pay for to, to pay just for twilight zone maybe open mind there uh as to other potential star trek properties pete i want to pitch one to you maybe here's how you take the starfleet academy one okay you cast Lark Voorhees as Lieutenant Commander Turtle Instructor at Starfleet Academy. <laughs> Call it Saved by the Bell colon Starfleet Academy. I think there's tons of potential there. She, of course, would be playing the great-great-great-granddaughter of the OG Lisa Marie Turtle from Saved by the Bell. Do it. Do it. Back to Facebook, Matt. Robert T. Frost had shared a post with us. Um, that you mentioned earlier that came from uh, the Mary Sue about all the different quarters, love the cutaway diagrams uh, from uh, Kirk all the way through Lorca for the captains. He says, here's a bit to follow up my post about following continuity between series. Well, not really, but at least it's comparing captain's rooms. Um, so really uh, – fun to look at there and i know matt was gonna look into linking that with this podcast post on fantasticgeek.com uh he followed up by saying he has a signed and framed copy of the 1991 poster for the uss enterprise 1701d that is an exposed interior view of various sections i've thought about posting a picture for room comparison of course but you can't get enough detail without close-ups, and uh, those haven't turned out well. I'd love to see Discovery do something like it, too. I think that stuff is coming, and I know we've talked in prior podcasts about the novels and how well-integrated or not they're supposed to be uh, with the rest of the story. I say bring on that secondary-level stuff. I mean, you know, story first. And I have really, really fond memories of the Next Generation pocketbook stuff, especially the Peter David novels. Q Squared is the best Star Trek movie, best Star Trek Next Generation movie that was never made. Um, but I also love me the technical manual and, and all that stuff, the chronology, etc. But Pete, greater than any Star Trek chronology or Star Trek technical manual, it is hearing from Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 4. That was David Bowie's 1972 Space Oddity. Run checklist protocol. I'm hearing considerably fewer syllables out of you than normal. I know the chair can be intimidating, but... Tilly 
Answer, Captain Pike. No, I'm not listening to you anymore. You tricked me and you lied to me. Ensign Sylvia Tilly. Ensign, what is going on? I constructed this little clip for last week's podcast, but somehow it got lost. And I still wanted to send it in. I re-edited it a little bit. It's not in the original order. And I left May out. Last week, some people on the internet had the idea that using the spore drive would somehow hurt the mycelium network. And that is the reason why they don't want to use it anymore. And possibly right they were. I had a complete other idea. My idea was it is a kind of organism and it could be infected and it could die. Well, and the simplest way of not having any spore drives in the future, and it will become canon, if the whole mycelium network dies, extinct, and nobody will ever think of a spore drive anymore, because it's not there. Imagine if we don't have any petrol, and in a hundred years, who would think of cars with combustion engines? Nobody anymore, because that fuel is not there anymore. So... That was my idea, how the simplest solution would be. But yeah, as righteous as the Federation is, of course, we are going to respect this kind of life form instead of extincting it. In that scenario, of course, the big question is whether other races or other species or other Federations are just as righteous. Probably not. And what about, for instance, Section 31? If they would need it, for some emergency, they surely would use it, whatever the consequences are for this life form. The biggest disappointment I had concerning this episode was that Rebecca Romain, actually called Romain because it's a Dutch name, had such a small part in this episode. I hope she will really come back. I loved her in the role she had in The Librarians and was very disappointed that series ended and was very happy that she would come back in Star Trek. And now she only has been seen very shortly in the beginning. And in a very, well, grumpy is perhaps not the right word, but there was only one fraction of a second that she did smile a little bit when she was in the transporter room and just arrived. So I hope we'll see more of her and more interactive. Of course, there were very emotional, very nice scenes between Burnham and Pike and between Burnham and Saru. And it was also nice to see Reno back. And we still didn't get our Spock here. So probably next episode. When I watched the very last shot of the episode where Reno and Stamets are looking into this creature, I got a very strangest thing feeling looking down this hole. Okay, that was all for this time. Greetings, till next time. Fred from the Netherlands. Really glad that uh, Fred brought up uh, Rebecca Romaine, uh, the Dutch name there. On number one, I think we need to remember she is playing uh, the reincarnation of a, of a Kurt character. So that she shows a little sense of humor. I think it is an improvement. We're going to learn... Uh, more about the character and, and see more of her as the season goes along. Yeah, I mean it's got to be a guarantee that we're gonna that we're gonna get the Enterprise bridge, the return of the Enterprise, the ships parting ways, you know, the ships meeting, then parting again. All that has got to be ahead. So 
fingers crossed there on a uh, on an optimistic future. And Pete, making sure that our future stays afloat in the stars is, of course, the people who visit patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, making sure that our uh, bandwidth and storage costs are, are helped out a little bit, and that's always appreciated. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. That's whether you give a dollar or whether you donate at the Let Me See the uh, Reboot uh, enterprise bridge early level, which doesn't exist yet, but we will make for you. Indeed, Pete. And uh, as mentioned before, that's always appreciated as those those costs do happen year round. But Pete, the greatest treat, it's always free because that's the future we're living in. It's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. Uh, I don't know what Twitter's doing, Matt. I lost another batch of followers, so I don't know if they're purging more accounts or what's what, but 10,303 followers. Can't be wrong. Pete, maybe as we look ahead to Marvel's Captain Marvel, the scroll are being kicked off of Twitter. Who knows? I know we'll be podcasting that movie and a whole bunch of other uh, MCU stuff. Nay, Pete, all MCU stuff over on our Pop Culture Podcast. Uh, but let's talk Star Trek one more moment here, Pete. Can't wait to talk about the next episode of Discovery, episode 205 next week. Thank goodness we still have plenty to come ahead of us. So with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. I was um, a weird kid. Mm-hmm.